you guys have all been in school before. You're adults, so uh, some of you might still be in school too. But uh, there's one thing about me that you might want to know, and that is that I didn't like school at all. And there were many reasons why I didn't like school, but one particular reason was because we had these things called pop quizzes, quizzes, tests, exams, whatever you want to call them. The ones that really scared me were the ones that were called midterm exams and the ones called final exams. Those were terrifying to me. They just struck fear into my heart. And, um, uh, I, re- in fact, even to this day, I still will go to bed at night and I will have nightmares that uh, I'm back in school again, and that I have either uh, not studied for a test because I didn't know it existed, so I get there and I go, oh no, there's a test, and then I fail the test. Um, I also uh, have the dreams where I go into like math class and I've studied everything for math, but it's actually a history test that I need to take, so I've studied completely the wrong uh, subject. But then I've also had those dreams where uh, I study everything for like an exam and I think I've got it. I've got it all down. And then when I go to take the test, nothing that I studied was actually on the test. And then I wake up and I'm kind of in a panic and I'm kind of in a fear, fearful state until I realize that it was just a dream and I'm so glad to have school behind me. But I thought about life and life has a series of tests or exams. I think we could call them midterm exams. They're pass or fail opportunities for us to gauge our spiritual growth. If there's one area that we're to pass and get a straight A in, it's this area of love. That's what should make us stand out from everybody else is our love, not only for one another, but for an unbelieving world out there. Now, as Christians, we're always looking for something to mark us as well, something to show the world, something to show ourselves that we're Christians, something to be identified by. And I thought of the what would Jesus do bracelets. You guys might remember these, the WWJD bracelets, right? People would wear them and we would see an actor or an athlete or we might see a musician wear it and we go, hey, you know what? That person must be a Christian because they got that bracelet on. We also have crosses that we wear as necklaces. We have rings that might have scripture verses on it. I've been to some bookstore or Christian bookstores that have guitar picks that say, pick Jesus on them. I also have been to places where they have breathments that are called testaments. So we've done a lot of things that have tried to mark us. And just as a way of confession for you all, you guys remember Calvin and Hobbes, the bumper stickers where Calvin is doing something disrespectful to another logo. So if you're driving the Ford, he's doing something to a Chevy. And if you're driving the Chevy, he's doing something to a Ford and so on and so on. Okay. So uh, when I got my car, it was a 1992 teal Colt Vista minivan. All right. I was rocking that <laughs> minivan. <laughs> It was a great time in my life, and uh, I couldn't wait to get rid of it, but it was a great car. And the one thing that I had on the back of it was Cal- uh, Calvin and Hobbes Digger, but Calvin was praying before the cross, because I wanted people to know uh, who I was and who I wanted to be identified with. Now, some of these things, some of them are really cheesy, like the breath mints and the guitar picks, and some of them are really good things that will mark us. But in John chapter 13, Jesus is looking at his disciples and he says something that's really interesting, something that will define us and set us apart. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's astonishing to me. If we want to be set apart, if we want to be different, if we want to pass our exams, we need to be known for our love. Yet I think that's the last thing that we're known for. So how do we become a more loving person? Because if we're honest with one another, we would say that it's not easy to love or even like another person. 
Have you found that vertical love loving God is so much easier than horizontal love loving people? Because God is so lovable, he's so gracious and so generous, and we as humans, after all, we're far from perfect. We're unlovable. It's harder to love horizontally than it is to love vertically. But according to the Bible, you can never separate the two. To love God means to love the objects of God's love. There are people in our lives it's difficult to show love to because, let's face it, they annoy you. There are people who frustrate you, who get on your nerves. There are people who cut you off in traffic. There are people who take forever in the line while you're waiting to order your coffee because they can't make up their mind. You got somewhere you need to be and you kind of want to push them out of the way already. There are people in government that are hard to love. There are people who are running for president right now that are very hard to love. Don't yell out names, but they are very hard to love and even like. And yet we're called to love them. That's what sets us apart as Christians and as the church. We should be known for our love. So here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I know we've probably heard 1 Corinthians 13 read at weddings before. And I don't think it's particularly wrong that we do that. I think it's a good passage of scripture to read. But I think sometimes we read it at weddings. We so often forget the context of what Paul is saying and writing here. Last week, we learned that uh, he's writing to this church in Corinth that was blessed with some pretty high-profile spiritual gifts. But Paul says that it means nothing unless they're supported by and motivated by love. And how it doesn't matter what gifts you're operating in. It doesn't matter what the corporate gathering looks like. It doesn't matter how many people are prophesying or speaking in tongues. None of that matters if you're not loving one another. And if you're not loving one another, not only is it a bad thing, but it does something to you. He's saying, I am nothing. He's not saying, it's just a bad thing. He says, it does something to me. It transforms me into nothing if I'm not loving people. And that's crazy to me. It changes your whole identity of who you are. It transforms you to be someone who's able to edify the church into someone who is really valueless. If you do not love, you're nothing. It's that crucial and central to the community that you love one another, that you be loving, especially in the ways that you operate in your spiritual gift. So that was last week. Now, before we dive into verses four through seven, I kind of want to set us up for it. I kind of want to set the scene, if you will. If you look at how love is described in these verses, you realize that it's not just a random list of attributes or characteristics of love. Instead, it's a direct rebuke of the lack of love in specific ways at Corinth. And as we study Paul's description, it becomes clear that he's not talking about a warm feeling, but rather a conscious decision to love people no matter what. Paul describes love in verses 4 through 7 using a series of 15 verbs. Now, our English translation will translate some of those verbs into adjectives, but in the original Greek, they're all verbs. And I think this is something significant. The love that Paul is talking about is not primarily something you feel, but something that you do. Married people know this well. It's one thing to say, I love you. It's another thing to show, I love you. Love goes a lot deeper than words. We may not always be able to control our feelings, but we can control our actions and even to some extent, our motivations. Love is something that you choose to do or not to do. It's something that we got to live. So let's take this exam together. Now, if you're worried, if you're fearful of that, if you're like me and that term just kind of strikes a little fear in your heart, don't worry. The final will come on judgment day. But until then, we can take little tests, little exams and see 
and, and look at our love for one another. And we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at what love is. And there's two things we're going to look at what love is. We're going to look at eight things of what love isn't. And then the third thing we're going to look at is what love will always be. Now, I'm about to open up a fire hydrant of love on you guys, okay? These are literally 15 love verbs here. And uh, the last thing that I want you to do is to leave and to walk out of here and feel like, okay, that was a lot of information. I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to go. I'm going to have to listen to this podcast in slow-mo because I didn't catch any of it. But what I want you to do is I want you to have your pens ready, okay? I want you to have something ready to take notes because I know there's going to be a lot of good takeaway things. I know there's going to be a lot of things for you guys to work on. But what I want you to do is write three things that you feel like in this, in, out of these 15 verbs that you feel like you're weak in the area of love. Even if you forget all the rest of them, just remember the three things that you feel like you're weak in. Now, I don't think that you need to uh, nudge the person sitting next to you and say, hey, especially if it's your spouse and you're like, this is just the Holy Spirit. Because I think a lot of times this move here is a Holy Spirit move, all right? It's not the Holy Spirit, okay? I'm just going to let you know that right now, okay? So this isn't three things your spouse can work on, three things your friends can work on, three things your kids can work on. It's none of that kind of stuff. It's three things where you feel like you're weak in this area of love, and we're going to see how we measure up. Starting in verse 4, it says this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. First thing we're going to look at is what love is. Love is an action, not an emotion. This is contrary to our culture that honors personal feeling above almost everything else. We do what we want, when we want, because we feel like, and if we don't feel like it, well, guess what? We're just not going to do it. But I'm struck by the complete absence of any stress on personal feelings. The first five words in verse four begin by summarizing the unselfish nature of love. Love is patient and kind. As we look at these attributes, these characteristics of love, We need to evaluate our lives and our relationships with one another according to these characteristics. We need to ask, are these attributes evident in my relationship here at the church with one another, with a small group, with the people sitting around me? And we need to ask, are these characteristics, are these attributes evident for my spouse, for my coworkers, for my friends, for my kids? So let's look at the first word. It says, love is patient. And it's interesting to me that Paul chooses to describe love as patience. The word patient here means being patient with people rather than being patient with circumstances or events. So this is not the kind of patience that endures through slow Wi-Fi when you just need to Google something already and you can't do it. This isn't the kind of patience that endures through the buffering screens on Netflix because you can't wait till Full House or Fuller House comes out and you can finally binge watch on Fuller House already. It's not that or maybe it's a documentary that you're looking forward to. It's not, you know, long lines at the DMV. It's not uh, going to the doctor's office and waiting an hour to get your name called. And when you finally get called, going to a smaller waiting room and then waiting another hour. It's none of that. What it is, is being patient with people, not circumstances or events. And so are you patient with others, with people here at this church, with people in your home, with people at your work? Love is patient means to love another person, not because of who they are, but in spite of who they are, in spite of what they have done to you. 
It's a love which understands the shortcomings of human nature and refuses to take offense. It's a love which sees the potential in people and doesn't demand instant maturity or growth. It's a love which continues to desire the best for others, even when it's slandered or abused. It's a love that endures without seeking retaliation. Are you willing to be inconvenienced, annoyed, or even hurt by people over and over again without getting upset or angry? See, I can think of so many people even in my own life who've been patient with me. I think of my wife, Jen, who's been incredibly patient with me throughout the years. I mean, it might be, whoa. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. See, I think I'm lovable, but you know, on the, on the real. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's good. No, but she has been so patient with me throughout the years. I think of my own kids who have been so patient with me. I even think of the people that I work so closely with here at the church who have been incredibly patient with me throughout the years as I'm growing here at the church. But the question is, are you and I patient with others? You could probably think of some people who've been really patient with you, but are we patient with those people in our lives? Maybe there's someone in your life that always is taking advantage of you all the time. What about those who upset you or hurt you by the things they say behind your back or even to your face? Maybe you feel that your spouse, your kids, your friends, your awakened group, the people you serve with, they're always taking advantage of your grace, your love, your hospitality. Whoever it is in your life that takes advantage of you over and over again, you are called to love them again and again. Not to give up on them, not to quit on them, but to keep loving them. You might be saying right now in your head, you know, Nate, this sounds really good on a Sunday. This probably sounds really good on paper, but you know... Do you know who I'm married to right now? Have you, have you ever met this person? They are the worst. Maybe it's your spouse. They seem, they seem to always be pointing out all the faults in your life. Maybe they, they aren't encouraging to you or never showing their love to you. You might think that uh, right now you're like, do you know who my kids are? They're like little demon babies in the morning when they wake up. They're running, they're screaming, they're hitting each other. They're sometimes not even clothed. And I just want to go to bed already, you know? Or maybe your kids are a little older and they're doing things right now that are testing your patience. Or maybe you're thinking right now, do you know who my boss is? He's the worst in the world. He's never caring. He's never gracious. He's never loving. And he's some other words that I can't say right now because I'm in the house of the Lord. But if you catch me in the parking lot, I'll really let you know what I think of this guy. You might be thinking this isn't achievable at all in my life. But what we're called to do is demonstrate the love that Jesus spoke of that turns the other cheek. The kind of love that's not concerned about our own happiness, but the happiness of others. We applaud vengeance as a virtue, yet we laugh at the person who forgives and turns the other cheek. Think about this. God has been incredibly patient with us, right? Amen? We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. We're all deserving of God's judgment. And yet he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins so that we could live with him for all of eternity. And as Jesus was dying on the cross, his words were, Father, forgive them, even after all we did. He was beaten and mocked for us, yet he still died for us to save us. Or how about in Acts when um, we read of Stephen's uh, last words as he was being stoned to death? because of his bold proclamation of the gospel. His last words were those of patience and forgiveness, as he said, Lord, do not lay this sin against them. There he was dying, and he was praying for his murderers rather than himself. And I know it's hard to think of others, especially when they're wronging us or hurting us. 
But God has called you and I to be patient with whoever it is in our life. To love God means to love the objects of God's love. So let's not have our passions react to the people around us, but our patience. We're all works in progress after all. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, he knows that you're not going to agree with all your neighbors, but he wants you to love them and to seek good for them and to care for them. If people hurt us, wrong us, speak bad about us, let's make it our desire to never stop loving them. So love is patient, and now it's also kind. If being patient is the passive side of love, then kindness is the active side of love. Kindness is patience in action. This is our active response towards others. Just as patience will take anything from others, kindness will give anything to others. To be kind means to be useful, serving, and gracious. It not only feels generous, it is generous. It not only desires the good for others, it works for it. Works for it. Now, here's the thing. If you wait for this emotion to come, you may never experience kindness. If you say, well, I just don't feel kind, so it'd be hypocritical for me to be kind to that person. I don't feel this emotion, so it would not be sincere if I were to reach out to them. No, forget about the emotion. Remember, love is active. It just does whether you feel like it or not. Philippians 2.3 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Think about that. Can you imagine what kind of church we would have if more of us operated by the principle that doesn't look out for our own needs? Instead of your needs and my needs and our own interests, but what about the needs of others? Instead of thinking about me and what about my needs and what's in it for me, how can I be better served? What if we came to awaken and we said, forget about me. What about that person over there? How can I serve others? How can I impact others? So is that how you've approached today's worship experience? Not in terms of what you might get, but in terms of what you might give. On a weekly, uh, it seems like every Sunday we have to turn families away uh, who have kids because we've run out of room. Not because, our, not necessarily because our rooms are smaller, although sometimes that's the case. But more often than not, it's because we've run out of people who are willing to give instead of get. We've been trying to get under one roof, and hopefully, by God's grace, we will get there by the end of this year. And we want to impact more people because, as our mission says, we want to awaken people far from Christ to new life in Christ. And the only way that we can do that effectively is if we have people who want to give instead of get. We need to be people who approach our Sundays in that way. And that's just how we can impact the people within these walls. Our groups have over 20 people, 20 groups meeting in the city of Clarksville this semester. It's one of our biggest semesters yet. And we're so excited about that. And the one cool thing is we put a high emphasis on um, our groups doing outreaches. So there will be 20 plus groups that will outreach and do a, something for the community or impact an organization in some way. And that is a way of just serving and giving back. Invade the City is one of the biggest things we do as a church in the summertime. And it's awesome because what we want to let the city of Clarksville know is that Jesus loves this city. And just as Jesus didn't come to serve, but or not to come to to be served, but to serve, we want to uh, show that as well. We want to serve the city and show Christ's love to the city. And so that's why we're looking for someone who shares that passion, who shares that desire to want to reach the city for Jesus. But what about in your home, with your wife and with your husband, with your kids, with your parents? 
Are you seeking out the good for others? It's not difficult to be kind. It doesn't take much effort, but it does take intention. And that's what Paul is talking about here, caring enough to be kind. So love is patient and love is kind. These are the two words that describe our passive and active responses towards others. God is being described as both patient and kind. God holds back his wrath and pours out his mercies. In Romans uh, 2.4, Paul speaks of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, and how God's kindness leads us toward repentance. And you know, as I was studying for this, I realized that love is one of the most basic truths of the Bible. Yet it's a truth that is so often forgotten. And sometimes I think it is the, it's the first thing we forget is the most simple thing. If love has truly changed your life, it, <coughs> it should be evident because of the fruit that comes from your life. Real love only develops when you meet love. Real love doesn't happen through trying, but through receiving and through meeting love. The best way you can tell if a tree is alive is by the kind of fruit that's coming out of it. If all that's coming out of your life is judgment, hate, spite, disapproval, there's a disconnect between you and Jesus. You need to look at your heart and you need to see if the God of love has truly entered your life. We should be so filled with love that we should attract people to us instead of what I think we do with the opposite, which is make people flee from us. So let's thank God for his patience and then be patient with others. Let's thank God for his kindness and be kind towards others. So those are two things, patience and kindness. That's what love is. Now, those are very easy to say, but also they're very hard to do. And now we're going to look at eight things of what love isn't. And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to divide it up a little bit here. We're going to look at the first four things. In verse four, it says, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. So let's start with envy or what we might call jealousy. Someone has said that envy will be one of the last sins to die. And envy wants what someone else has or wishing that they didn't have whatever it is they have. Maybe right now you're envious or jealous of that person's car that you saw on the way to church. Maybe you're envious or jealous of your friend's house because it's bigger and better than yours. Or maybe you're even envious of someone's wife or husband. But it can also be, uh, you could be envious of someone's spiritual gifts. We see what someone else has and we say, man, I just, I really want that. I want it is what they have. Or you might be saying, you know, Lord, I've been praying for this for so long. Why not me? Why have you not given this to me? And the problem is that we can become so focused on what someone else has that we forget to love them. But what happens is we burn with rage on the inside. We begin to fill up with anger and not love. Do you feel that way about someone right now? Are you sitting next to them? And, and I want you to do something. It's not going to be weird, okay? It's only going to be weird if you do it. Look at the person next to you and tell them that you love them, all right? I don't care if it's your spouse or if it's somebody you don't even know. Just tell them that you still love them. It's biblical. Don't be worried about it, okay? You're not going to go on a date tomorrow, okay? Maybe right now you're filled with so much anger and you're filled with selfishness and jealousy. And you're filled with envy and you wish... They didn't have whatever it is they have. You wish you, they could experience the same pain that you have. Love does not envy because love is glad for what another person has. There is no rivalry or competition in love. You cannot love someone and envy them at the same time. Jesus' disciples were quite envious of one another. They debated among each other who should have the greatest seat of honor. So maybe you're like that too. Are you envious? Are you prone to compare yourself with others? 
Envy or jealousy is no small offense. Remember, it was Eve's envy of God, wanting to wanting what God had and wanting to know what God knows that brought about sin into the world. It was Cain's envy that led to murder. And not long after that, it was the envy in Joseph's brothers that led Joseph into slavery. Proverbs 27, talking about envy, says this, Wrath is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? James 3.14 says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, here it is, this is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Without question, envy will be one of the hardest battles that you face in this Christian life. Because there's always someone who has something you don't, who's better at this or that than you. So consider the ways that you envy other people around you. The best way to cure envy is to pray for the one that you're jealous of. To pray is to demonstrate love because envy and love cannot exist in the same heart. And so if, if envy is uh, wanting what someone else has, boasting is its evil twin. Boasting is trying to make someone else envious of what you have. Jealousy puts others down. Boasting or bragging builds us up. Do you boast about what you have? Do you have that person in your life that always seems to be boasting about what they have? And if you're thinking, I don't really know of anybody who boasts that much, well, that's probably because it's you, okay? And they're thinking of you right now, all right? But you might have that friend who's always bragging about what they have, the latest car, the latest gadget, the latest whatever it is. Maybe it's how much money they have or who they hung out with recently or how good they are at this or that. And they're always seeming to throw it in your face, always bragging about it. Maybe it's parents who are bragging about how awesome they are at parenting. But spiritually speaking, sometimes it's how gifted they are with the gift that God has given them. I've heard of people who say, man, if I could only just be on that worship team, the presence of the Lord would enter this house and people would be weeping and crying because I have such a great voice. I'm a lot better than that guy. I've also had people who say, man, if I could only get up and teach, my, I have the gift of teaching. Let me tell you, everybody would be crying because I'm really good at this. I know what I'm doing. I'm a lot better than that short, fat guy up on stage who's talking, Okay. <laughs> But we have these people who boast and brag about the gift that they have. But love is not big-headed, but big-hearted. This means the more loving you become, the less boasting that you need to do. Whether you have lots of awesome things or the greater your spiritual gift is, the less prone you should be to brag. After all, the gifts that you have, the things that you have, have all been given to you by God. When you and I brag, we are demonstrating our insecurity and our spiritual immaturity. Paul states that bragging is the opposite of love, so we should pursue Jesus, so that we are humble before him and others. All boasting does is get people to notice you, to admire you. Boasting people will look what they can get from others rather than what they can give to others. You cannot boast in love at the same time because boasting is concerned with you while love is concerned with others. So closely related to boasting is this issue of pride, or what our text says, arrogant. I like how another translation translates this verse. It says, love does not puff itself up. Boasting is pride acting outward in relationship to other people. Pride acts inward in relationship to yourself. It is the act of puffing yourself up in your own eyes until you feel so superior to others that you cannot possibly love them. This kind of 
Pride is critical and judging and has no patience with others and doesn't act kindly. So are you arrogant before others? Sometimes it's obvious in our lives. Other times it's not obvious, but generally it's, it's subtle. We like to be made much of. We like to be admired. We like when people notice our successes. We like when people miss our failures. So we minimize our failures. We maximize our successes in others' eyes, even in subtle ways. We turn conversations in ways that make us look better and ways that draw attention to ourselves. We like to diminish the bad things about us. At our foundation, we have a deep level of concern about ourselves before others. So are you arrogant even in the subtle ways before others? The term arrogant refers to grasping for power. It's more serious than bragging, which is only grasping for praise. Arrogance disrespects others and carries a disdain for others, but God has called us to serve others and be gracious and loving toward them. And then love is not rude. In other words, love has manners. Are you rude to others? Do you say shameful things? Do you act in improper ways around other people, particularly when offended by others? We say, if my behavior offends someone else, well, that's their problem. They have to get over it. No, you need to consider what other people are experiencing. You don't know them. You don't know who they are or why they are or where they are, where they are, but you need to care about others. This isn't about you. To be rude is to disregard others when considering something we say or do. It's the very opposite of kindness, which regards others with what we say and do. Always considering how this or that may affect someone else for their good. Rudeness by Christians, by people like us, can turn people away from Jesus before they have a chance to hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We can become a barrier to the gospel. If you do not clearly see the gracious, if people do not clearly see the graciousness of Jesus in us, then how are they going to see Jesus clearly in the gospel that we preach? So those are the four of the eight things so far of what love isn't. The next four things that love isn't starts with a verb that tells us in verse five, love does not insist on its own way or it's not self-seeking. It's not irritable or resentful. I like how the New Living Translation translates this verse here. It says, love does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. Do you want things to go your own way? Are you irritable when things don't go your own way? I know I do. By nature, none of us like to be interrupted when things are going well. We, like, we don't like delays in our plans. We all desire a trouble-free life, and we tend to get irritated when our plans go wrong. I know traffic jams and all these two-way roads get on my nerves a lot. On a freeway, it's called a freeway. I hate when I have to stop on a freeway because I've got somewhere to be. And I just know in the last month, God was testing me in this area to see how I would prove myself because I have been in some of the worst situations in the city of Clarksville with traffic. I have been stuck behind people. I've been stuck behind other things that have just driven me nuts because I know God is testing me in this. But we don't like it when our cars overheat on vacation. If you're a parent, it's not good when your kid is always crying all through the night. We don't like it when our checks get lost in the mail. We like it when life flows according to the plan we've set out. And when it doesn't, and our nature is provoked to complain, grumble, whine, and even get angry and critical. So don't miss this. Any sign of a temper is a sign of a lack of love. Any fits of anger are uncovering roots of pride. Now, the Bible's not talking about a righteous anger that hates sin the way that God hates sin and is, and is against sin. 
what the Bible's talking about here is our reaction when our plans are interrupted or our feelings are offended. And we, re- and we react in irritation and frustration that shows the priority that we've placed on ourselves and it betrays the patience that God has called us to have with others. So are you irritable? Is there evidence of anger towards others or a temper with others? You may think that it's no big deal to lose your temper because it's all over in a few minutes, but the damage can be done just like a bomb going off. If we're not careful, this irritability, this anger can easily lead to resentment. So it's not resentful or it keeps no record of being wronged. Do you keep a record of others' wrongs? The wording here literally means to keep a book of evil tabs on someone who's wronged you. The Bible doesn't say, hey, you know what? Keep a record of wrongs because you never know when you might need to build a case against someone and throw it in their face. The Bible doesn't say that at all. It says love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Have you blacklisted someone in your heart? Are you waiting to settle a score? I think a lot of times our Facebook can turn this way. We friend people we really like and they do great things until they fail us in some way or say something that we don't like. And then all of a sudden we do the mature thing and that's delete them from our Facebook and then talk bad about them uh, because they can't see your posts anymore, okay? And so that's not, that's not good. Do you have the habit of bringing up the past? then you're not practicing love. Love does not store up resentment. Love forgives all offenses and keeps no record of wrongs. This is the way that God loves us when God forgives our sin. Psalm 130 says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Second Corinthians 5 says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ, not counting men's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. And God says in the book of Jeremiah, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Love doesn't hang on to reminders of wrongs that have been done to you. And you don't need to have a grudge until every single one is paid for. Love forgives. So who are you keeping a book of evil tabs on? Maybe today you need to seek that person out and ask for forgiveness. Because remember, love forgives. Our last description of what love is and is a contrasting negative to a positive. It says this in verse six, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. These are um, these qualities are the flip side of one another. Love is never glad when things go wrong. If someone you don't like falls into sin, you don't gloat, you don't go, yes, I am so glad this person fell into sin right now. But you grieve just like God is grieved. And if they repent, you don't go, oh, come on now. Now I got to spend all of eternity with that guy over there. You don't. You rejoice. There's a fine balance to love. Although love is kind, it overlooks the faults of others. It does not compromise the truth or take a soft view to sin. To allow another person to go into sin is not seeking their best. It's not loving at all. Love will sensitively confront and correct because it cares deeply and knows that sin destroys. Love rejoices with truth. Love gets excited when it hears of spiritual victories. Love is encouraged by expressing joy over growth in someone's life. John was an old guy when he said this, so this will make a little sense. In third John, he says, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear of my children walking in truth. Truth and love go together like a hand in a glove. 
Truth must make our love discerning and love must make our truth compassionate and forgiving. So we've looked at what love is. It's patient and it's kind. We've looked at eight things of what love isn't. And now real quick, we're going to turn our focus onto four things of what love will always do. Verse seven, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is my favorite verse in this entire section. It almost feels like a little bit like a song or a poem to me. First, it bears all things, which means to protect by covering. Love doesn't broadcast the problems of others. Love doesn't run down others with jokes or sarcasm or put downs. Love doesn't criticize in public. Love doesn't display its dirty laundry for the entire world to see. Protection is a natural effect of love. Husbands, do you protect your wives? Wives, do you protect your husbands? Parents, do you protect your kids? This all goes back to the patience that this passage started with. Love bears with others, protecting, providing for them, caring for them, feeling their pain, persevering with them in patience. Love bears all things, which is just another way of saying love defends the character of the person as much as possible within the limits of truth. Next, it believes. Love believes the best in every person. Isn't that what Jesus did? Didn't Jesus believe the best in every person? Simon, who later became Peter, Jesus said to him, you are a rock. To a prostitute, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. To a woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's the simple power of believing the best and not the worst about people. So love bears all things. It believes all things, but it also hopes all things. This means that love is optimistic. Love does not dwell on the problems of the past, but looks forward to a future with confidence and grace. This is like the parents of an unbelieving child or the spouse who's in an unbelieving marriage or the church that's had to discipline someone because of unrepentant sin. They all hope and love that the child, the spouse, the person that's fallen into sin will all be saved and restored. Love refuses to take failure as final. The rope of love's hope has no end. As long as there is life, love does not lose hope. When our hope becomes weak, we know our love has become weak. And finally, love endures all things. This really just sums up the whole passage, starting with patience and ending with the string of phrasing, uh, love bearing, believing, hoping, and in the middle of all of this, it's enduring. Because as verse 8 says right after this, love never ends. I think this is a very beautiful description of love. So love holds fast to the people it loves. It perseveres. It never gives up on anyone. Love won't stop loving even in the face of rejection. Love takes action in an impossible situation. Love looks beyond the present to the hope of what might otherwise or what might be in the future. Love bears what otherwise is unbearable. It believes what otherwise is unbelievable. It hopes what otherwise is hopeless. And it endures when anything less than love would give up. After it bears, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. After it hopes, it endures. There is no after for endurance because endurance is the unending climax of love. Love will not stop loving. So how'd you do on the test? What three things are you going to work on? I know I've got my own three things. As I studied for this, I found it very convicting. There's a lot here. 
And maybe you felt it too. But if you didn't, let me show you what I mean. As you read 1 Corinthians 13 and specifically these passages, uh, or and specifically these verses 4 through 7, you should see yourself in this passage. We should relate to these section of verses. But do we? As you read this passage, do you see yourself? Do you see your personality in this passage? I want to do something real quick as we close. I want you to read this passage with me, but I want to do it a little bit different. Um, you can do this silently. I'm going to read it aloud. And what I want us to do is I want to take out that word love and I want to replace it with our name. So I'm going to say my name. You can silently say it in your head with your name. And let's see how we measure up here. Verse four. Love is, or Nate is patient and kind to most people, unless I've had a really bad day. And then I guess I'm not super patient and kind. Nate does not envy unless I see something really cool and I need to have it. And then maybe I do a little bit or boast, but I might boast a little bit in some of the things that I have. He is not arrogant or rude. Well, unless somebody cuts me off in traffic. Let's face it, folks. Traffic is really the worst thing for me right now. I think this is going to be the thing that I, it's going to be the death of me. But anyways, Nate is not uh, arrogant or rude unless it comes to traffic. Then I might be a little rude to some people. And then I hope they don't come to church here. Nate does not insist on his own way unless it is the best way. And then we do go that way. Nate is not irritable or resentful unless there are really bad people. And then I might be a little resentful. Nate does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Nate bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things and he endures all things unless he's had a really bad day again and he's just tired of people and he just needs to be alone. I don't know about you, but I read this verse and I read this list and I look at myself in light of that and I realize that I've got a lot of work to do. I realize that there's a lot of room for growth in my life. There's a lot of opportunity for me to focus on how to be a better Christian and for me to focus on how to show love better. But think about this. There's only one name that can take love's place, and that's the name of Jesus. There's only one name that can be substituted for love in there, and that's the name in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and that is Jesus' name. That's the only name that can be substituted for love. There is no other. Now, this is not an excuse for us to say, oh, well, I could never show this kind of love, so I'll just leave that to Jesus. He's the pro. He's the one who's supposed to do that. No, that's not the case. His love can be your love if you let it. Our goal should be to wake up every day and say, how can I show this love just a little more and just a little more and just a little more? 1 Corinthians 13 is not so much a definition of love than it is a description of love. Love can't just be something we hear about in church. It can't just be something that we wear It can't be something uh, cheesy like guitar picks and breath mints that we carry around. It can't be even something we sing. Remember, Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love describes a love. This love describes a love that has to be seen. The world can't know unless they see. The world can't be, uh, the, the world can't know unless they're shown. And the world can't know that we're Christ's disciples, that we bear the same name of Christ when we call ourselves Christians if we're not showing love. So we better start showing love. Let's be known more for what we are about than what we are against. If there's one thing we're to learn in this series, it's that love is a commitment, it's a decision, and not a feeling. 
keeping up with this idea that I spoke of earlier about taking a test, I know that love can be a difficult course to take in life. And I'll share one reason why I think it's hard for people to show some love. There are people who aren't able to show love to anyone. It's really difficult for them. I'm reminded of a story in the New Testament. Um, Jesus was going to come over to this man's house. His name was Simon. He was a Pharisee. And Simon the Pharisee had this picture-perfect party in mind. Think about it. If Jesus came to your house, or if a celebrity came to your house, you would have this picture-perfect party in mind, right? You would know who to invite and who not to invite. Let's just be honest. There are people we would just not invite to these parties. And that was Simon the Pharisee. He was this guy. He had this picture-perfect party in mind. And then all of a sudden, this woman comes in, and she slips in, and she's a notorious sinner, and she spoils the whole party. And Simon the Pharisee must have thought, you know, if Jesus was really a prophet, if he really was who he say he was, and he knew who this chick was, he wouldn't be having her do the thing that he's do, that she's doing to him. And what she was doing is she was crying and she was weeping at the feet of Jesus, but then she was drying her tears with her hair. And Jesus turns to Simon and he gives him this little parable. And this is how it ends. He says, I tell you her sins and they are many have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. One reason people have such a hard time loving is they've never been forgiven. They've really never come to Christ and humbled themselves and admitted that they're a sinner and they need forgiveness. Because when you do that, when you humble yourself before God, you see yourself for who you really are and you find that God's love, God's forgiveness will cover a multitude of sins. You look at people differently, and you love people differently. So today, you might need to receive God's love. Remember, real love doesn't happen through trying. None of us can try, but it only comes through receiving and through meeting love, meeting Jesus. Real love only develops when you meet love, when you meet Jesus. Thank you for joining us for Vital, a production of Awakened Church. Our series continues next week as we look at the key ingredient in leaving a lasting legacy. 